Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If anybody is joining us for the first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, my name is Sam, and I'm the pastor of this church. Uh, for those of you who are wondering where you know our worship leader uh, Peter is, you know Peter and Eunice they're celebrating their 10-year anniversary, so they're uh, they're relaxing and having some fun uh, in I think Bermuda. Uh, what we have been doing is we have been going through a series on the Beatitudes. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of context, the Beatitudes, it's, it's basically an introduction of a larger sermon that's given by Jesus. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is primarily about the kingdom of God. And I think what the Beatitudes is doing is it's announcing, it's Jesus's way of announcing that the coming of the kingdom is, is here. And it's displaying that he's displaying the norms of the kingdom through these Beatitudes. And what I decided to do is, um, I think we're going to look at each individual beatitude because uh, sometimes, you know, you can taste all the notes when you take a sip of wine and you kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, swirl it in your mouth rather than having wine with a meal. And uh, the beatitudes are part of like a larger meal, but I want us to kind of take small sips and be able to taste as many of the subtle notes as we can as we look at each of these individual beatitudes. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the second beatitude, which says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if you're familiar with the beatitudes, then hearing something like this doesn't really shock you. But let's assume you were to hear this for the first time. I think it would sound very perplexing what Jesus is saying here. How are those who mourn? How are they blessed? Wouldn't a blessed life be one that is actually absent of mourning? And you know, you would think so, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, those who mourn are the ones who are blessed, for they shall be comforted. Now, this second beatitude, I think, is also connected to the beatitude that we looked at last week about poverty of spirit. And we talked about why poverty of spirit is something that is so crucial when it comes to being able to receive and belong to the kingdom of heaven. You see, without a poverty of spirit, it would be impossible to relate to God in the right way. The only way sinners can relate to God as he is, is uh, by being poor and needy, because we are beggars of mercy and grace. And that really is the only appropriate way to be in relationship with God. And when we come to that place, then we are in a position to be able to receive the grace that he gives so freely and receive the salvation that he offers to us. But it's one thing to know uh, in our mind that we should be poor in spirit. And it's another thing to live in that reality. Now, I think the second beatitude relates to the first in this way. Mourning is like the emotional expression of what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, I'm not sure if emotional is like the right way to put it. So let me expand on that a little bit. What I'm trying to get at is mourning is what makes our poverty of spirit a reality for us. Uh, it's not to say that we have to feel something uh, to be true in order for it to be true, because the nature of truth is not subjective, of course, it's objective. And yet, 
if there is no subjective experience of that objective truth, then it doesn't really have the power to affect us or to change us. You can intellectually know something to be true, but unless it is true from for you, then uh, it's not really a reality for you. So for example, uh, something that uh, I think everybody knows in our minds, we know that everybody is eventually going to die. And that's something that we understand intellectually. It is objectively true. And yet, it's only when we have an encounter with death and when we feel the pain of it that the reality of that statement uh, starts to impact us. When we feel it, that's when uh, we actually, it actually becomes more true for us. If someone close to us who maybe was somebody that we could relate to because maybe they're uh, a similar age as us or life circumstances as us, you know, if they pass away because of a heart attack, I think it would impact us in a very personal way. Uh, we may start to say, oh, I need to start exercising, or I need to start making changes in my diet, or it might make us realize, whoa, life is so short, and we have to try to make the uh, fullest use of our lives, or it might make us realize how, you know, we won't always have our loved ones around, and so we should try to be more conscious about telling people how much they mean to us, right? People have these reactions when they have an encounter with death. Now, the subjective reality of something makes things that we know in our minds very real to us. And so to know that uh, the poor in spirit are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven, to know that the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed is one thing, but to know it on an experiential level uh, really deepens our spiritual understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And I think mourning is the way to experience poverty of spirit. But sometimes we are not comfortable with mourning. Uh, it's not uncommon for people who've experienced something that is worthy of mourning or worthy of grief to think that they have to kind of hurry up and uh, get past the mourning uh, in order to get back to normal and move on with life. And sometimes you have to remind people, you know, it's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to lament. Uh, it's okay to uh, experience and feel these things. But more than being okay, Mourning is probably a, just a very necessary process to processing a new reality that you didn't exactly ask for. I think counselors and therapists will probably tell you that burying emotional pain is not the healthiest thing to do. And I'm not an expert in that field, of course, but it does seem to me that the process of mourning is actually something that is very important in order to bring the, the pain to reality so that you can actually adequately face it instead of avoiding it or compartmentalizing it. And I think that's why funerals are important. They give you an opportunity to mourn. And one of the sad things that, you know, I've been thinking of during this pandemic, especially the earlier months of this pandemic, is, you know, with a lot of deaths that were happening, you know, families were not able to have typical funerals. And uh, without that opportunity to properly mourn, I, I wonder if that makes coming to terms with this new reality of loss something that is much more difficult to process. Now, the examples I've been using are kind of downers, and um, the examples that I've been using uh, have to do with bereavement, but I also want to make clear that I don't think that's the kind of mourning Jesus is referring to. Um, I was just making the point that mourning connects us to the reality of something that might be painful so that we can face it, uh, but the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about, uh, I think it's a mourning that is actually based on our spiritual condition, a poverty of spirit. It is a kind of mourning that is produced when we face the reality of the wretchedness of the reality of sin in us. And the reason I say that is 
because commentators point out how there are so many strong echoes of Isaiah chapter 61, which we started our worship service uh, looking at. Uh, but they say Isaiah 61 is probably on Jesus's mind in these Beatitudes. Let me read to you uh, three verses from Isaiah 61. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, right? Poverty of spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And even in that, you can hear some of the echoes uh, from the Beatitudes, especially when it talks about how God would give comfort to all who mourn. Now, uh, let me also say this, by the way, you know, when Luke's gospel narrates the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, he records Jesus as he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he actually reads from this very passage. Matthew doesn't record that, but the Sermon on the Mount is the first major discourse in Matthew's gospel. So I think it is safe to say that Jesus had Isaiah 61 in mind when he is starting his ministry because what he is doing is he is proclaiming that his arrival signals that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of spiritual jubilee. Now, the mourning in Isaiah, it's not a, about personal bereavement or mourning from some kind of personal tragedy, but it's actually deeper than that. The kind of mourning that Isaiah 61 is talking about is the mourning over one's own sin that ultimately led to the ruin of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he lived through a lot of tragic results of the destruction of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile as a result of Israel's sin and idolatry. And so when Jesus is talking about how those who mourn will be comforted, I think he is talking about the kind of mourning that would turn the objective reality of poverty of spirit into a subjective reality for us. Now, people have rightly connected this beatitude to the spirit of repentance. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, I do, I do want to be careful and say that a genuine spirit of repentance is not just about shedding all these tears for your sin, uh, because I do have memories of when I was younger and uh, you know, people would be, you know, crying with deep sorrow over their sin, but then a little bit later, you know, they would just kind of revert back to their old ways without any desire to change, and it seemed like that time of prayer wasn't something that was uh, genuine, but I guess something that they thought they should do because everybody else was doing it. So there is a danger of thinking that repentance is uh, just about shedding tears without this actual turning towards God in a kind of repentance that leads to transformation of heart. At the same time, though, there is, a, there is a danger of a kind of repentance that doesn't genuinely mourn over our sin because we don't realize how tragically evil and anti-God our sins actually are. I mentioned I was reading some sermons by this Puritan named Thomas Watson to prepare for this series. And, uh, you know, he, he has a lot of helpful illustrations and a lot of helpful things to say. And in one of the sermons on, um, uh, on mourning, he says, you know, the right way to mourn for our sins and the, there's a right way to mourn for our sins and there's a wrong way to mourn for our sins. And he lists five characteristics of the wrong way to mourn. Uh, first, he says a despairing kind of mourning that doesn't lead to life. Uh, the second 
characteristic is a, a hypocritical kind of mourning that attempts to bring honor rather than shame. Uh, a, a third kind is a forced mourning that is compelled by the of sin rather than the offense of sin. So it's more about the consequences of what the sin produced rather than the actual sin itself. Uh, fourth, an external mourning that is performative. And fifth, a fruitless mourning that pretends to mourn but continues to blaspheme God. So he, he looks at that and he says, those are not the right ways to mourn. And uh, sometimes because of the nature of the human heart, those are that's the kind of mourning that oftentimes people will do. But then he goes and says, there is a right way to mourn for a sin. And he, he says, you know, the right way of mourning, it should be spontaneous and free because what God desires is a free will offering, uh, meaning it shouldn't be compelled by anything. Uh, it should be spiritual. And by that, what he means is we should mourn for the sin more than the negative impact of the sin. Uh, mourning should send the soul to God, meaning that uh, in our mourning, it shouldn't actually draw us away from the Father, but what it should actually do is draw us closer to the Father. And he says mourning should also be for particular sin. So it's one thing to say, you know, I've been proud and I know God is not pleased with that. But it's another thing to say, you know, in my pride, I've treated so-and-so so poorly because I don't think that person is actually worthy of my kindness, right? So he has a lot of good things to say about genuine mourning for sin, but uh, I just wanted to give you a sense of what he means by true gospel mourning. When we think of one who mourns, I don't think we should think of one who is just like all weepy and crying all the time and saying, I am such a horrible sinner. Um, that, you know, maybe that's a little bit too dramatic. I actually think the way you can tell that someone is genuinely mourning for their sins is when the person seems incredibly close to God. You know, it's the kind of person who seems to have a remarkable faith, a great trust in the goodness and in the power of God. And also, I think it's the kind of person who has this overall kindness and graciousness towards all people. Now, uh, I talked about how we were thinking about... <clears throat> you know, meeting in uh, Duffy Square. And uh, some of you know who Missionary Brian is. He's actually coming to visit New York next weekend. And I thought it would be awesome. You know, he's going to go out with uh, some people who've been praying in Times Square in the morning at seven in the morning. And I was like, oh, it'd be awesome if we uh, had our first like kind of in-person worship there. And I was going to ask Missionary Brian to, uh, to speak for us after that Times Square <laughs> prayer meeting. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see uh, what shakes out next Sunday. But uh, you know, he, he is a man that I think a lot of people would say is a remarkable man of faith. And the last time he visited New York, uh, I was driving him back to his hotel and he was telling me the story how, uh, you know, someone tried to rob his house when he was staying in California. And this was pretty recent. I think this was like last year or something. And I, I actually forget the details of what he was saying. Um, but it was something to the effect that when someone was trying to rob his house, he, he did something to try to protect himself and protect his wife. And uh, it's, it's something that I think any of us would have done. But then he said something that I didn't expect. He said later on, he had to repent because of that moment. Because he said in that moment, he didn't fully trust the Lord. And I suspect, I forget the details of what happened because what he did didn't seem sinful or didn't seem out of the ordinary to me. But when I heard him talking about how he had to mourn for his lack of faith in that moment because he didn't trust the Lord in that moment, you know, when he said that, I thought, wow, this is a man who is so sensitive to his own sin 
that he would repent about not trusting the Lord after somebody tried to rob him. <laughs> now, if you've been around him, there is definitely this kind of kindness and a sense that he is very near and very close to the Lord. And I suspect, you know, it's only those who mourn often for their sin. Uh, it's only those who can experience and receive the abundant comfort that God provides in the form of great forgiveness and pardon. And I think inevitably what that does is that draws you closer to the Lord. That's the paradox of mourning in repentance. Uh, it actually leads to greater joy and freedom because you get to experience the comfort that God gives. Uh, these days, we have so many ways that we can justify our sin or shift blame to somebody else. Uh, and it seems like everybody is doing that everywhere in our culture, in our society, and even in churches. You know, we can blame our parents for our sin. We can blame uh, our government leaders for our sin. We can blame the culture. We can blame the church. Uh, we can blame the lot that we have been given in life. And, you know, of course, some of those things might actually be justifiable on a horizontal human level. But, you know, on this vertical level, when you measure it against the holiness of God, it actually doesn't really matter because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, that makes us all accountable for our own sins against God. And therefore, there is always reason to mourn for our sin. And when we try to justify our sin, you know, we think it'll make us feel better, but it really doesn't. I think the only way to experience a, a deep sense of comfort and peace is through a heart that genuinely mourns over our sin, because then we are able to genuinely experience the comfort of God as he declares forgiveness over us through the blood of a crucified Christ. So, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I do pray that we can be the right kind of mourners so that we can receive the right kind of comfort. That in Christ, God has given, and this is from Isaiah 61, in Christ, God has given us beauty for ashes. He has given us the oil of gladness rather than the oil of mourning. He has given us a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. But the way to receive these blessings comes by way of mourning over our sin. To experience the objective reality that we are poor in spirit and to make that a subjective reality for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your grace and we thank you that you're a God of comfort. And, you know, anytime we are pricked in heart because of... Uh, you know, something we've done uh, in those moments where we are really convicted of uh, the sin in our hearts. Um, you know, those of us who have had those moments know how crummy it really feels to, to be there. Um, and we also know on the other side of it that when we bring that to you and when we feel the uh, I guess the lightness of Jesus carrying those things on our behalf as we receive and feel the comfort that you give as our loving Heavenly Father, as we feel the invitation to come near to you and to uh, come uh, into your presence and into your kingdom and to belong to your family. 
uh, we know that there's so much life-giving power in that. And I pray, God, that we would all be able to experience and feel that life-giving power and that you would draw us closer to yourself. And I pray also that you, wouldn't, um, you would help us not to become maybe numb to sin, uh, help us to not be so defensive or um, seek out uh, justification for our sin, um, especially when we come before you. Um, but help us to own it, to face it, that we might um, receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers in his death and in his resurrection and help us to be greatly comforted by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.